listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 29. We're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs chapter 29 this morning. And as you are turning there in your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, and it is the subject of fear. I like talking about fear because I think deep down inside, I really like scaring people. Does anybody here share that disturbingly profound joy of making people scream? I do, right? I think perhaps one of my greatest successes at scaring someone was when I scared my brother, Nathan. Nathan is five years younger than I am. And uh, he was always trying to prove that he was braver than me, his older brother. I remember one night after dinner, my mom had cooked fried chicken and she cooked a ton of fried chicken. And if you've cooked fried chicken, you know that what's left over is a lot of grease. And so it was after dinner, it was winter, it was dark outside. And my mom had this pitcher full of grease and she looked at me and she said, Mark, I would like you please to go pour this grease out on the burn pile. Now, our burn pile was located um, in a place we called the back in the back, okay? It's, the Eggerdahl family had a, a backyard that had a chain-linked fence, and there was this small strip of land before the dark, spooky woods, and that small strip of land we called the back in the back, and in the middle of that was the burn pile, and so my mom said, would you go pour this on the burn pile? And I looked at her, and I said, no, I am not going going out there. I don't want to be eaten by some wild animal. And uh, she kind of laughed, but my brother Nathan was standing nearby and he kind of scowled at me and looked at me and goes, chicken. And he grabbed the pitcher of grease and he headed out the back door towards the burn pile. And it was about that time that my sister-in-law, Bridget, turned to me and looked at me and said, Mark, go scare him. And I thought, (laughs) so what I did, he went out the back door. I went out the front door. I bolted around the front of the house. I turned the corner and I'm running now parallel to the chain link fence in our backyard. And I am running full speed towards my brother who's in the back in the back at the burn pile beginning to pour out the grease. And I'm running full speed on my two feet. And when I hit the back in the back, I did something that I like to do when I scare people. I don't like to just come up behind people and say, boo, and, and scare them that way. I like to actually get inside people's heads. So what I did was I was running full sprint on my two feet. And right when I hit the back in the back, I went down onto all all fours, did not lose any speed. I was coming at Nathan on all fours, rustling through the fall leaves and making sounds like, you know, like some animal um, out of his nightmares coming to attack him. And Nathan had his back towards me and he's beginning to just, he's just about finished pouring out all of the grease and he hears this creature of his nightmares coming behind him at full speed. And Nathan did some 
something really, really, really funny with a high-pitched scream. He jumped up into the air and in one motion did a complete 180. I'm coming up to like tackle Nathan. And he took the rest of that pitcher of grease and he threw it and boom, it hit the middle of my chest. Grease went everywhere. And before I could tell Nathan to calm down and that it was me, he was already up on the back porch trying to get into the back door. I love scaring people. Fear can be a a powerful motivator, can it not? And in this world, there are many things to fear. But this morning, the fear that I want to talk about is one that is, I believe, extremely pervasive yet difficult to detect. It's called the fear of man. And this morning, we're going to spend our time, most of our time, examining just one verse together. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The scripture says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Would you pray with me? Father, now as we have our Bibles opened, we also open our hearts. Lord, we want to learn of you. We want to see you for who you are. Lord, we want to be changed by your word this morning. And apart from your spirit opening up the eyes of our hearts, Lord, we cannot do that. So, Lord, We pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of insight and of revelation and the knowledge of you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you as glorious. And Lord, I pray that we would help us to see others as people we can love, not people we are enslaved to. Lord, only you can do this work, so give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to look at several things from this verse of Scripture. Number one, I want to ask the question, the questions, what is the fear of man? And what does it result in in our lives? And then number two, I want to ask, what does it mean to trust the Lord? And what does that result in? So let's begin with the question of what is the fear of man? Well, in the dictionary, there are several definitions of fear. Fear is a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, or pain. So fear in one sense could be you swimming out in the ocean, you see the shark fin come up out of the water, you begin to hear music in your head, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? And it's an impending danger, and so you get really afraid, right? But there's another kind of side to fear and another definition, and it means to have a reverential awe. This is kind of, this is the kind of fear that I'm talking about, the fear that kind of worships the approval of man over the approval of God. And as I said, it's a subtle yet pervasive desire to elevate the thoughts and opinions of man over the thoughts and opinions of God. But as believers, we are called not to fear man, but to fear God, right? 
to recognize him as supremely worthy of our heart's worship, right? Now, now I'm not saying that um, you should just completely disregard what other people think, right? I'm not saying that you should just... When you say, don't fear man, you just say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to do what pleases me. I'm just going to basically bulldoze over people. Who cares what they think? That's not what I'm saying today. I had a camper at the Wilds when I counseled there, and I was counseling in senior high. The Wilds is a Christian camp in North Carolina, and I had a particularly big senior high camper who sweated profusely. Right. And day after day, he would come back to the cabin and instead of taking a shower and putting on fresh clothes, he would just kind of walk out the door and he would go to the evening service. Well, after a while, you can imagine this guy began to stink really bad. Right. And it got so bad that I had to actually confront him about it. I had to say, hey, you need to go take a shower, right? You need to change your clothes. But he would say he didn't care about what anyone thought. Then he would dump a bottle of cologne over the top of his head, and he would walk out the door towards the evening service. And when you walked by him, you didn't know if he smelled sweet or disgusting, because it was like a mixture of smells. And after a while, finally, the entire cabin was able to convince this boy that he should take a bath in the creek, okay? And we finally got him to care about what other people think. I'm not talking about we completely disregard what other people think. When we talk about seeking God's approval over the opinions of man, I don't mean that we should just bulldoze over people. God made us to live in community, right? Which means we need to be sensitive towards the thoughts and feelings of others. We can't simply ignore this second part of the great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So to some degree, we do need to be mindful of the thoughts and feelings of others so that we might serve them, right? So I'm not saying completely disregard what other people think. What I'm saying is, though, that all too often, our heart corrupts a good desire to think of others and turns it into an unhealthy craving for their approval. Our hearts are idol-making factories, And they often will take a good thing and turn it bad. Soon our lives become dominated by the desire to have people's approval at whatever cost, even if it means sinning against God by doing something we should not or by not doing something we should. So how do you know that You have the fear of man showing up in your life. Well, I wanted to just kind of give you a few diagnostic tests for you this morning. How do you know that you have the fear of man? Well, number one, I think you're afraid to lovingly confront other people. Is there anyone in your life that you're afraid to tell the truth 
So often we refrain from lovingly speaking the truth in our relationships because we are afraid of how the other person might react towards us, right? We're tempted to laugh at an off-color joke at work instead of reproving the speaker. We're tempted to listen to gossip instead of stopping it from spreading. We're afraid to confront people in positions of power for fear of what they may do to us or say about us. We overcommit to people because we just can't say no. We can't tell them the truth that we're overcommitted. We keep our mouths shut instead of lovingly proclaiming the gospel to our friends and families, our coworkers, and our neighbors. Is there anyone in your life whom you fear to tell the truth? Is it a friend, a parent, a spouse even, a sibling, a child, a boss or a family member? You know you have the fear of man when you can't tell somebody the truth. You know you have the fear of man when you can't take criticism well. Those who love the approval of men do not take criticism well because it's an assault on their image and self-worth, right? There's basically two responses that you, negative responses that you can have to criticism. You can, number one, fight back and, and try to control the situation. You're trying to control the image of you in the other person's head so you are angry or you ma- manipulate, right? When criticism comes at you, you kind of fight back. But the other way is to, um, you are driven to anxiety or even depression, right? It's people criticize you and you just go down into the dumps, into the pit of despair. And you question your worth and you question if they love you because they criticize you. Now, not every critic is worth listening to, right? But often we do everything possible to prove that we're not wrong or that our sinful actions were justified instead of learning from constructive, gentle criticism meant to help us, right? We offer excuses or point our fingers at something or someone in order to protect our image. We don't take criticism well. Number three, you're not willing to admit that you're wrong. This kind of goes with criticism, not taking it well. You're not willing to admit that you're wrong or that you need help because perhaps you don't want people to have a negative viewpoint of you, right? It's the I'm fine response, right? You walk into church, perhaps your life is in shambles, perhaps you're being crushed under the weight of circumstances, perhaps you are struggling with deep temptation, and yet you walk into church with your Sunday clothes on, and somebody asks you how you're doing, and you, instead of telling them the truth, say, I'm fine, right? Your social media accounts look great, right? But deep down inside, you're broken and you need help, but you're not willing to admit that you're wrong because you don't want people to think that you're weak. 
Now, I'm not saying you should go spill your guts on social media. Nor am I saying that you have to spill your guts to everybody who asks you how you're doing. But let me ask you the question, does somebody know the real you? Does somebody know your struggles, the difficulty going on in your life? Does somebody know the person perhaps behind what you present to all other people? Are you open with somebody sharing that you have a need? You know what? A person who fears man will not share that they're broken because they want to maintain an image. Now, as a side note, you know what? Church should be a place where um, church should be a place where we can be real, right? After all, the most basic reality of a church is that sinners go there, right? A church is not a, a museum of the saints. It's a hospital for broken people, right? And so at church, there should be relationships where we can be real. You know, you have the fear of man when you lie to make people like you. Whenever we're in trouble or we have done something wrong or something that would negatively reflect on us, we are tempted to lie. And the reason why we do that is to protect our image. We did something wrong. We don't want people to see that, so we lie and cover it up. It's the child who deceives his parents, who leaves out key parts of the story so that he won't bear his parents' disapproval. It's the worker at work who fudges the report to make himself look better in his boss's eyes. We have a temptation to deceive other people. And sometimes it's not a bold-faced lie. Sometimes it's telling the person just enough to satisfy their curiosity without revealing your heart. You know you have the fear of man when you're tempted to lie. You know you have the fear of man when your mind is filled with thoughts about how people perceive you. Does my spouse think I'm a good partner? Do they think I'm a good parent? Do my kids think I'm a good parent? Do my mom and dad think I'm a good kid? Does my boss think I'm a hard worker? Do my team members view me as valuable, a value, valuable asset to the team? Am I keeping up with the Joneses? What do my neighbors think? Um, do, do people like my social media posts? Do people respect me? Do people like me? And, and your life is filled with a constant anxiety of what are other people perceiving me as, Right? And if we're honest, that deep down inside, those thoughts are often running in the background of what we are doing because deep down inside, we want something from other people. We want their approval. And that is the very essence of the fear of man. It's desiring the approval of others above the approval of God. So we've seen kind of what the fear of man is, but what, does, what is the result of fearing man? Well, look at what the Bible says. It says the fear of man lays a snare. 
A snare is what hunters use to trap animals. Right now I'm kind of on this kick where I love watching like survivalist shows, right? And I've been watching this outdoor survivalist show and people are setting snares to catch animals. And the snares they set are really simple ones. It's a piece of snare wire that they kind of loop around and they do a tiny loop around the other part of the wire, and they'll set these snares along game trails. And as the animal comes through the loop, the loop begins to tighten around their neck. And the more that the animal tries to struggle, the tighter the loop gets around their neck until it strangles them. And so the next morning they go out and they check their snares, and sometimes they would be filled with, dead, fluffy Arctic bunnies, right? And it's like, you're watching these bunnies die and you're like, this is terrible, but I can't look away, right? And, and that's how they would snare. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. It promises you reward. It promises you acceptance and approval, but in the end, it leads to entrapment and slavery. Worshiping man's approval will never satisfy our hearts. Why? It's because man's approval and thoughts towards you are fickle, right? It's shifting, it's, it's unstable, which in turn makes your life unstable. When people, are, when people like us, we're happy. When they disapprove of us, we're a mess. And our life is bound by this cycle of what are people thinking about me today? And it seems like it's going to meet some need in your heart to give you some worth or to secure you in some kind of love, but that is insecurity by definition because people change, do they not? That's no way to live. And sometimes the trap gets so bad that it can lead to things like self-harm, bulimia, anorexia, thoughts of suicide. The fear of man is a snare. But what does it mean to trust the Lord? And what does that produce in our lives? Whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe, the scripture says. To trust, the word, Hebrew word for trust means to be confident in, to be secure in something. To be reliant upon someone or something. That's what trust means. But notice where this confidence and trust is placed. It should be placed in the Lord. What does it mean to be confident in the Lord? It means this, that we are confident in his character, who he says, who he is, and we are confident in his promises that he has made to us. And here in this proverb, the writer uses the personal covenant name of God. If you look at it, it is capitalized, right? Whoever puts his trust in the Lord shall be saved safe. 
He uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the uncreated one. Yahweh, the God who spoke into existence the very universe by the word of his power. Yahweh, who delivered Israel by his mighty hand out of the hand of Pharaoh. Yahweh, the God who parted the Red Sea. Yahweh, the, wa- the God who crushed the walls of Jericho. Yahweh, the God who time and time again delivered his people out of the hands of their enemies, even when they were faithless, he remained faithful. He is the one in whom we should place our trust. There are many attributes of God that could give us security and confidence But the one I want to draw your attention to this morning is uh, his steadfast love for you and for me. Turn back to Romans 8, would you? I'd like to read that again together. The proverb calls us to trust the heart of God, his character and his promises And perhaps the most securing thing could be to think of God's steadfast love for us. Look again at what it says in verse 31. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? You know what that means? It means that God has given you everything you need for every circumstance and situation. God has actually given you everything you need to answer that question that rises continually in your heart. Am I loved? Am I valuable? God has given you everything you need. He didn't spare his only son, right? If you gave you his only son, will he not graciously give you all things, right? You know what that means? It means that you and I don't need the approval of man to make us happy or to satisfy our hearts or make us feel valuable. Why? Because we have Christ, And we are complete in him. Look at verse 33. Who should, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is in, who is, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you know what that means? Look up this way. It means this, that God's opinion is the only one that matters. When it comes to matters of justification, when it comes to matters of self-worth or anything else, God's opinion of you is the only one that matters. And the beautiful thing is this, that the God who knows you through and through, the God who has seen you at your worst, the one who knows your rebellion and sin better than anyone else is the same God who has justified you in his sight. 
And when God starts speaking, everyone else has to be quiet. Because his opinion is the only one that matters. So you don't need the approval of man. Because you have the approval of God. Who has justified you in his sight. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what these verses mean? It means you are eternally secure in the love of God. Nothing, no angelic being, no earthly uh, creature, No calamity, not even death, can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. You don't need the approval of man to make you happy or give you some sense of worth because you have a God who loves you deeply and has purchased you with the blood of his Son. And the beautiful thing about trusting in this God is that he never changes. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's love for you will never change. He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. No, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. If you know this God and his faithful love for you, then your life will not be dictated by what other people think. What an amazing, securing, wonderful truth. So we are to be confident in the Lord, in his character, and his promises. But what is the result of trusting in the Lord? Well, it says in Proverbs 29, 25, whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The Hebrew word for safe carries the idea of protection. They'll be protected or secure. In other places of Scripture, this word is translated with the idea of being exalted above one's enemies, to have the high ground, right? Whoever trusts in the Lord is going to have the high ground. They're going to be protected. They're going to be safe. When we put our trust in the Lord, it's as if God plucks us out of the torrent of the floodwaters and sets our feet on a rock. When I was preaching this summer in Alaska, I was talking with a group of people and we began talking fishing and the subject of fishing for salmon came up and how they fish for salmon in the rivers of Alaska. 
And what they do is they go out early in the morning, uh, usually with one or two people, and they get on a boat and they go out into kind of the middle of the Copper River and they'll drop people off on just rocks, boulders out there in the middle of the river. And how they fish for salmon is they have these nets that are kind of attached to poles that they dip down into the water. So they've kind of got to be close to the water and maybe sometimes a little bit in the water to try to get fish the salmon out with their nets. But they began to describe to me how very dangerous it is to fish in the Copper River in Alaska. And they said, um, basically, it's a very, very deadly enterprise to go fishing there. Because the Copper River is a pretty strong current and it's filled with vortexes that if you fall into them, you will be sucked down to the bottom. And as one lady put it, it'll suck you down to the bottom, beat your body against the rocks and shred you into fish food. Okay, that's her words, right? And then they said, well, if the vortexes don't get you, then the composition of the water itself will because Alaska's water is highly filled with a lot of silt. And so if you fall in, the silt will penetrate your clothes and your clothes will then become your anchor, which sink you down to the bottom. And they said, if you fall into the river, they don't go sending search parties for you because you are as good as dead. And I asked them like, okay, so how do you fish for salmon? in a river that if you accidentally slip into, you could be dead. And they said, well, what we do is we bring a rope and we tie it around ourselves. And then we take the other end of that rope and in the boulder, we've drilled down and put in metal braces and we tie it around those bolts. And that keeps us tethered to the rock. No matter how perilous the water They are safe because they are tethered to the unyielding rock. The fear of man is much like that river. It's full of snares and perils, but trusting in the Lord is like being tethered to the rock. There is safety and security in his character and his promise. Actually, it is the Lord that stabilizes you. It is the Lord that protects you. So what do we learn from this today? If we were to summarize what we've learned this morning, we could say this, flee the snare of worshiping man's approval and trust the heart of your covenant-keeping God. Flee the snare of worshiping man's approval and trust the heart of your covenant-keeping God. God, for when you trust in him, you are safe. And not even death, as we learned in Romans 8, can take that away from you. So you actually might die, but you know the love of God 
can never be taken from you. And ultimately, you are safe in his arms. So how do we apply this to our hearts this morning? Well, number one, I think we need to get to know our covenant-keeping God, right? You can't trust somebody whom you don't know, right? We often, as the book, the famous book title says, we often view people as big and God as small, right? When we love man's approval and we subject ourselves to their thoughts, what we do is we make man big and God becomes very small. In order to combat that, you and I must gain a picture of God where he is ultimate. He is supreme. We've got to know his character and his promises. We must see him for who he is, a God highly exalted, a God mighty in power, a God rich in wisdom, a God faithful faithful in steadfast love for us. And we must let this image of God crowd out all other idols. We must know this God. Number two, I think we need to meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. If God is for you, who can be against you? Think of Jesus who suffered the most horrifying death on the cross, who hung naked and blood-soaked before the eyes of men so that you could be freed from the bondage of sin. And specifically in light of our discussion this morning, you could be freed from the snare of the fear of man. Jesus was willing to endure public dishonor so that you could be free. And let God's unyielding love secure your heart and drive out fear. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I remember one morning my son came into my room very early. My kids wake up very early. <laughs> Doesn't matter how late we put them to bed. They'll always wake up at like six, sometimes earlier. And um, he came into our room one early morning and crawled into bed and was snuggling with daddy. And as I was holding him, I just told him, I was like, hey, son, I want you to know I love you. And he responded to me in the most peculiar way. He said, daddy, do you love me because I'm good at math? <laughs> now, Miles is good at math. I think he is. I mean, for at least for a five-year-old, like, he loves counting. He loves solving problems. He's got a little piggy bank that he pulls out, and he's constantly counting his money. And uh, one day, he came up to me, and he was like, 52 plus 52 is 104. And I was like, how did you know that? And he's like, well, 5 plus 5 is 10, and 2 plus 2 is 4, so 104. And I was like, okay, I, I don't know if that works all the time, but you did get it right. <laughs> And he kind of loves math, and, and we kind of, you know, we tell him how good he does at it. But I tell him, son, I love you. And he, he responds with, daddy, do you love me because I'm good at math? And I saw in his question, actually, 
a question that runs in my heart all the time. God, do you love me because I'm good at something? Because I'm a good pastor, a good dad, a good husband, a good friend? God, do you love me for what I can do? And sometimes that question is not directed at God, it's actually directed at others. I'll look to others and ask that question, do you love me because of what I can do? And I, I responded, my response to Miles was this, I said, no. I don't love you because you're good at math. I love you because you are my son. And even if you were poor at math, I'd love you still the same. And you know what meditating on the gospel does? It reminds us that we had nothing to offer God. <laughs> we had nothing to offer other people. And yet in the, our depravity and rebellion, that's when God says, you're mine. And he washed us and justified us and made us children in his sight. You know what's going to drive out fear of man? Understanding God's love for you as his child. Right? So get to know your God and meditate on the gospel. Number three, repent from worshiping the approval of man. The fact is so often we exchange the love of God displayed in the gospel for the vanity of man's approval. What folly is that, right? Here we have been given the banquet feast of God's love, and yet we reject it in favor of the pauper's table of man's approval, right? What a wretched choice. And yet the beautiful thing is, is that when we come repenting, when we come confessing our idolatry, God again pours out his grace and his kindness on us and he sets the banquet before us once more because his love is faithful even when we are faithless. So come repenting. Come asking for forgiveness for choosing to reject the glory of what he has done for you in, in favor of the person sitting next to you's approval. And you'll find that God is a forgiving and gracious God. And he'll set that banquet feast in front of you again. Number four, ask God to help you to live with right motives. And those motives would be to love God with all of your heart first, really to fear him above all else, to love him with all that you are. And number two, to love your neighbor as yourself. When you are operating by these motives, there's no need to fear the opinions of other people. You are free to love them simply because you love them, not because you need them to give you some sense of worth or approval. You just love them, right? You don't need anything from them. You just love them. So ask God to help you live with these motives, to have him first place in your heart, to fear him above all things, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally, the final application I would give is to those who, maybe you're here and you are not yet a believer 
Maybe you haven't yet come to the point where you have seen your sin and your need for God and you have not yet turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. To those of you who may be here, maybe you're a visitor or maybe you're a longtime member and you know deep down in your heart that you're maybe not even a real believer, you could be the child of a member sitting here in the seat and you know deep down in your heart you're not a believer to you, I would say graciously and with great compassion to you, you must embrace Jesus to be free. You cannot be free from the snare of sin apart from putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You must see him dying for your sin so that you might be forgiven and adopted as God's child. You must see him rising victorious from the tomb to give you new life and a new relationship with God. Don't let the fear of man of what others may think of you if you decide to follow Jesus prevent you from following Jesus. You must embrace him to be free. Because it's only through him that we get all the blessings of Romans 8, right? God gives us everything we need. His opinion's the only one that matters. We're secure in his love, right? So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, let me just plead with you, beg you, Don't let what other people think of you prevent you from tasting the wonders of his love. The wonders of his grace and his mercy. So, what must we do? Get to know your God. Meditate on the gospel. Repent from worshiping the approval of man. Ask God to help you live with the right motives. And if you're an unbeliever, you must first turn to Christ today and you will be free. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.